3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55am. Uh, good morning, Priya. Good morning, Shahrazad. How's it going today? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. I'm just trying to wrangle this microphone uh, that keeps on moving. So sorry if I sound a bit funny sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, what do we have on today? Oh, we have so much. As per usual, we feel like we won't have enough for the show, and then we end up with a chock-a-block um, run sheet. <laughs> so we might just jump right into it. So first up, we're going to have Carly with the headlines. Carly's still joining us from Minjin. Very jealous. Um, and then uh, Shahrazad? Oh, yeah. And then we'll have uh, Liv uh, Tualo, who will join us to speak about uh, the nurse. Oh, well, he spoke with Carly, so will kind of join us um, uh, to talk about the Nursery for Community, a nursery adaption project in Vanuatu. The project has been created as a response to climate change and natural disasters, which have damaged the livelihoods of many across the island, impacting on food stock and food security. And after that, Shahrazad's going to speak with Liz Starry, who's a financial counsellor working at Women's Legal Service. Liz has worked in several community service organisations and prior to the legal service worked with people experiencing homelessness. As a financial counsellor, Liz is a member of Financial Counselling Vic and convenes the Working Group on Centrelink Issues. She'll join us to discuss how COVID-19 has impacted financially disadvantaged women experiencing family violence, including economic abuse, and we're really keen to highlight some of the problems that women experiencing economic abuse have been facing during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then uh, Jack Bertulis, a research coordinator at Market Forces, will join us to speak about tax breaks afforded to the resource extraction industry and the recent disclosures of fossil fuel company donations to major political parties. After that, I'll be speaking with Gala Vanting, the National Programs Manager at Scarlet Alliance, Australian Sex Workers Association, who joins us to chat about the government's online safety bill, which poses a serious threat to sex worker livelihoods and digital freedom and privacy. Submissions for the bill close this Sunday, the 14th of February, so we're going to be talking about how you can get a submission in and show your opposition to the bill. Um, and finally, I'm going to be speaking with Ayabatanya Abrakasa, who's a DJ and artist based on Gadigal land, who joins me to speak about the brand new podcast, Four to the Floor, Exploring the Black Roots of Contemporary Music, a podcast about black music, history and culture in Australia and beyond. Four to the Floor is created and hosted by Ayabatanya and produced by Sarah Mashman for the Melbourne Music Week. And you can catch the first episode with guest Paul Gorey at the Melbourne Music Week extended website. A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. 
It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. And now Carly joins us from Mianjin to uh, give us the news headlines. Good morning, Carly. Good morning, Shahrazad. Hey, Priya. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it. <laughs> All right, so the 11th of February. It was announced yesterday that the Victorian Labor government is investing in upgrades to Barwon Prison. The government plans to expand the capacity of the prison by 196 beds and has pitched the project as a way to create more jobs for the local economy. Construction will take place as part of the government's contract with construction company Hanson Yunkin. The new maximum security beds are expected to be operational in 2022, enabling the prison to accommodate up to 706 people. The expansion is part of the $798 million program to expand the capacity of five Victorian prisons. Barwon, Marganite, Middleton, Hopkins and Metropolitan Romand Prisons. The Minister for Corrections, Natalie Hutchins, says the government is investing in key infrastructure to keep staff and the community safe, as well as boosting prison programs and investing in education and skill development. This is coded language by the government to increase the criminalisation of racialized and impoverished communities and endorse slave labour. Now to Queensland, where Anastasia Pelagie has announced new measures to further criminalise young people. These measures include trialling GPS tracking and reversing the presumption of bail for serious offences. This legislation will see an increase in remand rates of young people in jails. Professor Tamara Walsh from the University of Queensland School of Law says that tinkering with the laws in a way that makes people feel better is not actually going to improve community safety. And what we've found in the past is that it can actually make things worse. Many leading youth justice advocates have also stated that these are knee-jerk reactions and they're not based on evidence. Earlier this week, the Victorian Labor government pitched the idea of using people in prison to address the fruit-picking labor shortage. Agricultural Victoria has raised the possibility of using prison labour in a December 23 meeting with horticultural industry groups and the federal government. The federal government offered to fast-track Pacific Island worker visas if Victoria submitted health protocols for models such as on-farm quarantine, which the Victorian Labor government did not support. This solution to the fruit-picking labour shortage comes after last year New South Wales Corrective Services pitched the idea to train people in prison to fight bushfires. And lastly, new research shows that the captive population of orange-bellied parrots may compromise phenotypic traits critical to their survival in the wild. Studies have shown that captive birds have shorter second and third feathers, but longer fifth and sixth feathers than wild birds. 
Wing shape of migratory birds is crucial to migration efficiency and the altered wing shape may contribute to low observed survival of these parrots when they're released into the wild. The current population of orange-bellied parrots is around 118 and there is a species breeding site at Malaluka in Tasmania's southwest region, which is helping in the birds' recovery. In the spring of 2017, there were only three mature females remaining in the wild and that grew to 13 last year, but the reduced gene pool has scientists worried at the risk of disease of the birds. And that's it, the news headlines for the 11th of February. Thanks, Carly. Absolutely seamless integration of that news about the orange-bellied parrots there. Um, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, just, just going back to that, uh, news about the Victorian Labor government pitching the idea of using prison labor to address the fruit picking labor shortage. This is really, and, and, and drawing on fast tracking Pacific Island worker visas, this really just sounds like blackbirding 2.0. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think it was very like widely reported last year either about New South Wales Corrective Services pitching the idea to train people in prison to fight bushfires, which we have seen in California mm. uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Queensland and the Victorian Labor government really pushing prison expansion at the moment. Um, and with Queensland, um, yeah, this is a very, very, like, knee-jerk response from Anastasia Palaget, and there are a number of key, like, yeah, youth advocates, as well as some, actually some members of the police commission who were like, whoa, um, mm. we really need to slow these laws down um, mm. because they're not based in evidence. Um, I mean, what's the GPS tracking of youth? What do they plan um, for that to solve? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this is absolutely going to fall across racialized lines. Like, I've been seeing some you know, more conversation about sort of vigilante violence against Aboriginal people in Townsville um, and the way that, you know, young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are going to be the ones that are disproportionately affected by these kinds of measures. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Carly, um, and hope you have a fantastic day. Yes, see you, Shahrazad. See you, Priyam. Have a good show. Thanks, Carly. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up, and we're still talking about revolution. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM.
So we're going to go into a song. So this is Kickoff by Khdek, uh, who, which means sister in uh, Arabic, but um, in Moroccan Arabic it's pronounced kind of differently. Um, so she is an up and coming uh, or emerging, I should say, uh, rap artist in Morocco. with kickoff. All right, and next up, we're going to go to an interview that Carly did with Liv Tualu from Fujina Youth Nursery, who joins us uh, joins us to speak about Nursery for Community, a nursery adaptation project in Vanuatu. The project has been created as a response to climate change and natural disasters, which have damaged the livelihoods of many across the island, impacting on food stock and food security. This morning, I am speaking with Liv Tualau, who is part of Nursery for Community, a nursery adaptation project in Vanuatu. Welcome, Liv. Thanks for joining me on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So can you first start off by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and what brought you to being a part of this project? 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm Liz, as you said. I'm 20. I am a Tongan and Fijian woman living on Wanjiri country of the Kulin Nations. Um, and I think my interest is kind of came about through like um, being a Pacific, a Pacifica woman. And, you know, this project is based in Vanuatu. Um, so kind of being privileged enough to have contact with the team over there with this idea of the um of the nursery um to kind of maintain traditional agricultural practices which is something i yeah i think is really really important so that's probably my main like reason for being part of the the project and yeah and how many youth are involved in the project um, at the moment, it's about a team of 30 volunteers and coordinators over there. Um, leading it is a guy named Iso, who's really awesome. And on our um, Chuffed crowdfunding campaign, people can you can check out some videos about him and his work with um, his climate work over there. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it's called an adaptation project. So can you talk a little bit more about what nursery adaptation means and why it's important? Yeah, so last year in April um, 2020, um, Vanuatu was hit by a tropical cyclone, Tropical Cyclone Harold, which was really devastating for a lot of the community over there in terms of, you know, damaging their livestock and um, really impacting upon their livelihoods. Um, so yeah, this nursery adaptation program is kind of a response to, um, the impacts of climate change being on the front lines over there. Um, and an opportunity for young people to learn about traditional and, you know, indigenous, um, practices and techniques of climate change adaptation that have been used for so long. Um, and yeah, um, this nursery will be like an accessible learning space for them. And it also is an opportunity for elders and people who already hold the knowledge of these practices to pass this on to the youth so they can, you know, cultivate really sustainable living practices for the wider community. Yeah, that intergenerational knowledge and um, practice is just super important. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what the project looks like over there at the moment? Yeah, so at the moment, um, they have been able to secure a block of land. It's about two acres um, in the island. So the, the purpose of our crowdfund has kind of been able to is about being able to provide like financial support, which is what they've expressed as like the main need at the moment, because yeah, at the moment it's, it's just looking like the piece of land is what they have. And then they have this, um, this project idea, but yeah, funds are really just needed to be able to move forward and purchase materials and, you know, transport those materials as well because of the remoteness of where they are. Um, and then to be able to continue the support for volunteers and 
you know, facilitate workshops and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, some of the main like, plants um, or foods that people are trying to grow in Vanuatu? Um, yeah, a couple would be, I guess, main root crops are like cassava and taro um, and then also like mahogany and then some other um, crops that would be used for like buildings, um, making like traditional buildings and whatnot. Yeah. And this is a pretty heavy question, but I think it's really important to go to the roots of how and like why climate change is just so rampant and like why it's affecting so many communities, you know, all across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but how have you seen colonization affect places like Vanuatu and other islands such as Tonga in the Pacific? Mm. Yeah, I think with colonization and like, the introduction of like you know more western practices and like the normalization of that um that's definitely impacted upon how people view traditional um agriculture processes and you know that's obviously had detrimental impacts to the environment um but i think things like this are really important things like this initiative and like the Warren of Kanak Initiative, which we've collaborated with, are like really crucial and testament to the you know resili- resilience of the people um, in being able to maintain those those really really important practices. Um, yeah, because you know not every not everybody today holds that knowledge, and I think yeah these are really amazing opportunities for us to. Um, continue the practices that have sustained us for so long. Mm. And has there been any opposition at all to this project in Vanuatu? No, I don't think there has been any opposition. I think, yeah, this is just a really exciting initiative for the people and something that, you know, it's really exciting for the youth um, to be able to kind of take on these skills um, and hopefully, yeah, the hopes are that this kind of work and these um, nurseries will be able to kind of become more widespread across the whole of Vanuatu. So, like, this would be, you know, somewhat like the first um, of its kind and then, yeah, in hopes to, like, kind of pass it on through communities and different villages and regions. Yeah, yeah. incredible. So you mentioned um, that there is a fundraiser through Chuffed. Can you tell mm-hmm. listeners, um, yeah, a bit more how they can donate to this project? Yeah, so people can check out our Chuffed. We do have a um, an Instagram page um, at Futuna underscore Youth underscore Nursery on Instagram. Um, so that will be the main place where we post our content. Um, you can check out the direct link to our Chuffed organisation there. I mean, our Chuffed um, crowdfunding. Um, yeah, so that would be the main place. You can also check out um, the Change the United Struggle Project on Facebook as well um, and get in contact with us through there. DM us, 
um, and we should be in touch. Um, yeah, we recently did on our Instagram a call out for any um, artists or people with small businesses who had anything that they would like to donate um, for us to like raffle off or if people have a space where we could hold events in the future um, to aid in our crowdfunding. Um, yeah, people should definitely reach out to us on Instagram. On our Instagram. Perfect. And for listeners, again, that Instagram handle is at Fortuna Youth Nursery. Um, and, yeah, definitely go check out the Chuffed page and donate. Well, thank you so much, Liv, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So that was a conversation that Carly had with Liv Tualo, who joined us to speak about Nursery for Community, a nursery adaption project in Vanuatu. Goongro Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. All right, and you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Now, just before we jump into our next interview, we wanted to let you know uh, to please check the Department of Health and Human Services. Ooh, it's called something different now, but if you look up DHHS now um, to look at the coronavirus updated exposure sites, because there have been some sites added on the 10th of February, so that's yesterday. So please have a look. They include the Commonwealth Bank in Glen Waverley, the HSBC Bank in Glen Waverley, and Sunbury Square Shopping Centre in Sunbury. But please go and have a look and see if there are exposure sites near you and um, check if there's anything that you need to do to make sure that we can all keep our community safe. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's 
it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55am. Joining us now is Liz Starry, who is a financial counsellor working at the Women's Legal Service. Liz has worked in several community service organisations and prior to the legal service worked with people experiencing homelessness. And as a financial counsellor, Liz is a member of Financial Counselling Victoria and convenes the working group on Centrelink issues. And she joins us now to discuss how COVID-19 has impacted financially disadvantaged women experiencing family violence. Uh, good morning, Liz, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. And I probably just want to um, acknowledge all First Nations people. I'm sitting here today on Wurundjeri Wurundjeri land and um, just acknowledge uh, the people, First Nations people in Triple R as well as all your listeners. Thank you. Um, and I, I guess I gave a little intro, but could you just um, introduce yourself and uh, more importantly yeah. the work you do and within the organisation that you work with as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a financial counsellor, as you mentioned in your intro, and Probably um, not everyone knows what financial counselling is, so I might just give a little bit of an understanding of that. Um, financial counsellors work within usually community organisations or community legal centres or um, community health centres sometimes. Uh, it's a service that is free, confidential and independent. So if someone is looking for a financial counsellor and they're paying for services, they're not receiving financial counselling. Financial counselling is usually funded by government funding. Um, sometimes it might be by other grants through those organisations that they work for. And what financial counsellors do is they primarily assist people who have financial problems and that's often around debt matters. Um, and that might relate to credit, things like credit and um, utilities, uh, telecommunication accounts 
and things like fines and infringements. So the work I do at Women's Legal Service is predominantly working in a legal setting assisting disadvantaged women who have had uh, relationship breakdowns and um, mostly experienced family violence and they will be getting legal assistance through our organisation. And where there's financial issues arising and problems, I will assist as well in uh, their issues. So that could be where they have had um, uh, debts or bills that they can't pay anymore or fines in their name, um, a whole range of matters. It could be Centrelink debts as well. Oh, it might be getting assisting them with access to grants and concessions. I'll be looking at their overall financial situation, um, explaining to them what their rights and responsibilities are, what their options are, and assisting them through making decisions and uh, possibly advocacy. So it might be negotiating things with creditors and um, companies in how to recover and best deal with their best deal with their uh, financial problems and work to a pathway of recovery from that financial difficulty. Great. Thank you so much for that uh, comprehensive overview. That was, uh, I, I kind of was a bit kind of confused because financially financial counseling can sometimes sound like that, um, you know, working for a financial company or something like that. So uh, thanks for that. Um, and you work in service delivery, as you just mentioned, mostly. So you're uh, face-to-face with clients. Um, That's right. And so how has COVID-19 impacted women experiencing finan- uh, family violence um, and specifically um, economic abuse? Well, it's been a really interesting year and in many ways, um, I think we're yet to see a lot of the ramifications of COVID-19 in the area of family violence. You know, well, in my service, what I do, because um, we know that, you know, violence has increased during this past year and uh, women, you know, <laughs> reaching services has probably been problematic for many women who have been in situations where, you know, there's been all those restrictions, a lot of services, you haven't had face-to-face delivery of services. So access to services has been, you know, mostly through phones and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, that is yet to be seen and we're really expecting that there will be a lot of people coming through um, not only our doors, but a lot of services and financial counselling services in the coming months. And added to that will be um, the reason because added to uh, see more people would be because lots of changes happened last year that um, supported people and women financially initially and a lot of those measures that were in, put in support are starting to wind down. So what I'm talking about, initially at the start of the year, there were a whole lot of raster measures that were put in place that helped people. And they were not only people that might have lost employment due to COVID-19, 
but also people who had a range of um, financial difficulties anyway due to family violence or coming out of a relationship from family violence. And um, those measures included things like um, the increase in the job seeker payment. At the start of the year, it was called New Start, and then it shifted to become Job Seeker. And then uh, when COVID hit, the federal government um, put a whole heap of payments in place that you probably know, such as jobs, uh, the Job Seeker Coronavirus Supplement, um, Job Keeper payments, uh, and things like that, which changed. Uh, the lives of many people who had been struggling in poverty and a very low subsistence on the previous New Start rate. So over the year, um, our initial uh, contact with people who were receiving that allowance that doubled their job, their New Start rate, which became Job Seeker rate, they were able to do things like um, pay for food on the table every meal, um, pay for medications, pay for uh, their kids' you know clothing, uh, school books, everything that are normal necessities in everyday life of you know living with a family and so forth. So there were some really good things at the beginning of that. Um, Obviously, the issue of family violence in um, uh, the stage of lockdown is something that, you know, would have increased due to a whole lot of pressures and, um, you know, the the difficulty of, um, you know, the restrictions that we had in place. Other measures that helped financially at that point in time, though, included things outside what just the government had done, and that included things that credit institutions had put in place for women or for people and women, including things like um, uh, deferrals on um, uh, loan repayments that people had, and that included personal loans and mortgages and what we call moratoriums on credit cards where they didn't have to... pay their normal amount that was due. Um, There was measures put in place to assist people in paying their gas, electricity, water, and there were really generous um, uh, different things arranged under all those different areas of financial assistance. And these are starting to be wound back now. And at the same time, um, what we have is that the over the year, the payments to JobSeeker have incrementally decreased. And we know that people are struggling now, again, even though it hasn't fully gone back to what the rate was. And as far as we know, beyond um, March it will go back to the previous rate. We don't, you know, the government hasn't committed to what's going to happen past 1st of April. Mm. So there's a lot of concern and uh, and we share that concern with the women that we work with, how they're going to manage, um, you know, on that low income again. 
So that was some of the things that were happening. I think, um, as, as I mentioned before, and I think another thing that was really difficult for lots of women was uh, the fact that, you know, there weren't the face-to-face services available. And there's a lot of fantastic phone services in, in the community sector to assist people. But um, it was really hard when people weren't able to come in and maybe if they were in a, you know, home environment where we had all the restrictions in place and normally they would have been able to, you know, access their doctors or their local community service where they might be able to disclose something that was going on, Um, you know, that was really exacerbated by this restrictive phase and also I think you know for lots of women um, you know having children at home during that period and um, having to do things like homeschooling but also having kids around it was really hard for people to have the privacy to be able to talk about you know what was going on at home so I have real concerns about um, you know a lot of women during that period mm. that um, won't be able to won't, won't weren't able to access and and get the supports that they needed so easily and readily. So uh, you mentioned um, that uh, the coronavirus supplement. Uh, and welfare payments will return uh, to below the poverty line. So those supplements will uh, disappear, for lack of a better word. Um, And I guess those moratoriums uh, and deferrals on evictions and those sort of things uh, will cease as well. Uh, What do you foresee or predict uh, in the coming months? Uh, Will financial abuse increase, do you think, or...? Um, I, I'm not a, um, uh, a researcher in, in family violence, so I probably can't give a prediction as such. Um, but I certainly, I certainly think there's a lot of concern about the additional financial pressure that's going to be placed on women and, um, you know, with families in terms of how they are going to be able to, um, you know, uh, go forward with these measures reducing. And that always has a wide range of consequences when there's financial pressure included in that. Um, we know that. So, you know, I can't predict what's going to happen, but it's, going to place more pressures on family without a doubt. You know, we're looking at people who um, have had this long period, long periods of assistance through, as you said, you know, payments on debt, whether that's been personal debt, uh, credit cards or mortgages. And if their income hasn't increased um, during this period and they've relied on those um those measures to assist them, then all of the sudden, you know, that where's that money going to come from? So it w- there will be increased stress in households. Hopefully, you know, people will be accessing services 
to get the help they need, but we might see that more people have to go bankrupt um, or look at those kind of measures, which is something that, um, you know, that we do with people in financial counselling is, you know, assist them if they need, need to go through that bankruptcy process. But I do think that the last year, um, with all the measures in place, we've been able to assist them otherwise. The other thing that I wanted to mention was um, um, what one of the interesting things that we have seen over the last few months has been when we have been working with creditors, um, there's been more of a COVID response than um, a response around family violence, I suppose. And um, that whilst it's been great, um, we do feel like we still need to be um, educating and getting the message out there that when women in, when women are faced or uh, have experienced family violence, that the response needs to be much more long-term and ongoing other than a short-term hardship response of, oh, well, in three months your situation's going to change because you're going to get a job or the economy is, is going to shift. So that's that's something that I just wanted to highlight. Yeah, no, totally. Thank you. Uh, and well, we're just running out of time, but just quickly, uh, if people need to access financial support or other support services, uh, how can they do so? Yeah, um, so if people uh, would like to access financial counselling, which is free, confidential and independent, they should contact the National Debt Helpline. Um, it is a telephone service, but that telephone service can make referrals to community agencies. Um, I think some community agencies are still um, working remotely, but... Um, you know, hopefully we will be going back into the office soon. And the number to ring is one eight hundred double zero seven double zero seven, and that is a free telephone line. So that's one eight hundred double zero seven double zero seven, the National Debt Helpline. And um, if anyone is experiencing family violence um, and has any concerns, they should be contacted contacting um, 1-800-RESPECT and and 1-800-RESPECT would also um, be able to refer people into the direction of assistance if there's economic abuse and financial matters in that. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. We'll have to get you back on so we can talk more about uh, these issues. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. DigiChew, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. Uh, and that was Elizabeth Starry, who is a financial counsellor working at the Women's Legal Service. And she joined us to discuss how COVID-19 has impacted financially disadvantaged women experiencing finan- uh, family violence. And it is 7.47 on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And we're about to go to an interview with Jack Bertolis, who is the research coordinator at Market Forces, who's joining us to speak about tax breaks afforded to the resource extraction uh, 
industry and recent disclosures of fossil fuel company donations to major political parties. So, Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, so before we sort of jump into um, some of those heavier topics, uh, could you tell us a little bit about market forces? Uh, what does market forces do? Absolutely. So market forces is an environment NGO, and we believe that financial institutions should use our money to protect rather than damage the environment. So we enact that by exposing those institutions financing fossil fuel companies and projects wrecking our climate and by enabling people to shift that money away from fossil fuels and towards clean and sustainable alternatives. So basically, if you're a bank customer or a member of a super fund or you have a policy with an insurance company, you have a say in what that money is used for. And if you're unhappy that those institutions are investing in fossil fuels and you want to see that change... Um, you can come and check out our website and, and make that happen. And similarly, if you own shares in a company, um, you, you know, you have a say in, in how that company operates. And if that company is involved in the fossil fuel industry or financially supports the fossil fuel industry, we can help to hold them accountable. Um, and that's, that's part of our shareholder action work. And again, we have links on our website where you can find out more. Um, and we're, we're also part of the Stop Adani Alliance, so we're constantly providing opportunities for our supporters to call on the likes of banks and insurance companies and, and other companies as well to rule out funding for the climate-wrecking Carmichael coal mine uh, in Queensland. So, so far, for example, we've convinced 25 global insurers to publicly rule out insuring any part of the uh, Adani Carmichael project. So we're involved across a lot of work and, and listeners can get involved over at, at marketforces.org.au. Great. Thank you so much for that overview. Uh, and data analysed by Market Forces has shown that the government gave $12 billion in tax breaks to the fossil fuel industry last financial year. So what impacts is this having on the Australian economy? It's having really significant impacts. It means we're entrenching the polluting industries of the past instead of taking advantage of, of the huge opportunities presented by the transition to, you know, to a clean zero emissions economy. And just to put that figure into perspective, just $7.7 billion went to renewable energy in Australia in 2020. So putting that in the context of $12 billion, it's, uh, it's just staggering how much uh, in tax breaks are actually given to the fossil fuel industry. And given that, you know, about a quarter of our electricity now comes from renewable energy, just imagine what we could do if we could actually spend another $12 billion on renewable energy every year. It would make a really significant difference. The other point to make there is, of course, that tax breaks are only one uh, one type of subsidy that's actually provided to the fossil fuel industry. It doesn't account for a lot of other types of subsidies, including direct contributions and handouts to the fossil fuel industry public finance to the fossil fuel industry uh, as well. So, for example, we've got this uh, this idea from the federal government of a gas-fired recovery. And last year we saw um, the Prime Minister, for example, early in the year announced $960 million in federal funding, uh, quite a lot of which was aimed at massively boosting gas supply. We had uh, over $50 million um, aimed at, at boosting gas supply and, and transportation in September um, we saw $203 million earmarked for construction of new diesel fuel storage. So that $12 billion figure is really just the tip of the iceberg. 
And I think our politicians really need to wake up and, and realise just how much opportunity uh, there is in the transition to, to a net zero economy because the world, the economies of the world in 10 or 20 years' time are going to be demanding green steel and green manufacturing. And you need renewable energy to power that. And here in Australia, we have some of the cheapest, most abundant renewable energy in the world. I'll give you just one example of a clean clean energy opportunity. So in 2019, the CEO of the federal government's renewable energy agency said that if Australia were to export green hydrogen at a scale that could replace our gas export industry, the LNG industry, we would need up to 700% renewable energy. So in other words, in addition to generating all of Australia's electricity needs from renewable energy, we could generate five to six times more than that for export. Uh, Just on on the flip side, our politicians also need to realise how much risk is involved in continuing to invest in fossil fuels. Um, You know, just last last month, uh, one of the world's largest automakers, General Motors, pledged to stop making petrol cars, utes and vans, by 2035 uh, and, and is instead actually going to invest heavily in electric vehicles. So, you know, you don't reach net zero by subsidising polluting fossil fuels. It's really just holding us back. Mm. And you spoke a lot there about, uh, I guess, politicians um, and the fossil fuel. And we know that the fossil fuel companies also donate heavily to major political parties. So I guess uh, what... You, you kind of mentioned some of the consequences, but what specific, what other consequences has this resulted in? Yeah, so they, they do donate really heavily, and for the benefit of your listeners, uh, in the 2020 financial year, we saw $1.35 million uh, donated by fossil fuel companies to Australia's major political parties. Uh, that's actually just the tip of the iceberg, though. I mean, it, it's quite important, I think, to understand this. So, our political donation system is, is shrouded in secrecy and um, tens of millions of dollars each year are actually donated from completely unknown sources. Um, there's actually one estimate that was released last week by the Centre for Public Integrity, which um, found that 35% of political contributions amounting to about a billion dollars came from unknown sources in the two decades uh, since 1999. So that's um, a huge amount of money where, where we just, we just don't know where it came from. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's called dark, dark money. Um, look, there's a general theory about political donations, which is companies don't make them for free. <laughs> They're expecting something in return. Uh, a report from the Australia Institute uh, in 2017 found that donations from mining companies, including fossil fuel companies, correlate with the election cycle. They correlate with timelines on project approvals and debates on key uh, industry policies. So for just, just as an example of that, we found that uh, in the latest political donations figures that Woodside Energy, which is Australia's largest gas producer, donated $335,000 to Australia's major parties in the 2020 financial year. So those donations were actually made in the same financial year that one of its key gas pipelines was approved, um, which formed part of its massive Borough Pub gas project in Western Australia. Uh, there was also, uh, I'll, I'll just give another example. There was a, a telling moment at the coal and gas company Origin Energy's 2017 annual shareholder meeting where its, uh, its CEO, Gordon Cairns, was asked why the company paid more to attend political uh, functions than its peers. 
and he told shareholders that Origin had been able to shape the government's thinking on energy policy, and that was, quote, money well spent. Um, so, you know, what, what, the, what the fossil fuel companies get in return for the donation, um, you know, why is, why is the federal government pursuing a, a so-called gas-fired recovery? I think listeners can, can make up their own mind on that point. Yeah, so uh, so is there a direct correlation then between donations and changes to environmental legislation? Um, and as you mentioned, uh, to allow for new resource extraction projects, you mentioned uh, Westside, which also has um, extraction projects in uh, Rakhine province in uh, Burma, uh, which we know uh, is the centre of a kind of ongoing ethnic cleansing of Rohingya people. Is that Woodside, is it? Woodside yeah, yeah, Woodside. Energy. Sorry, that's, I said Westside. That's, that's not, yeah, Woodside. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's just, it, it's sort of, um, staggering how much, how much money is actually donated to, to the, the major parties and, and how that actually correlates to, you know, as, as was found, um, uh, you know, the approvals process. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's really quite concerning. Mm. Um, and how can listeners push for more transparency around political donations and what, what other market forces campaigns can listeners get involved in? So people actually often feel a bit disempowered, but there, there is a lot you can do. Um, the, the market forces uh, political donations webpage, we, we actually link off to a number of inquiries and reports into the donation system uh, and, and listeners can find out more about it at marketforces.org.au forward slash political donations. Those, those resources make a number of recommendations for exactly how the system needs to change. So the types of recommendations that are made are there needs to be caps on the amount that people and companies can donate to political parties, you know, caps on the amount that political parties can spend, better disclosure of political donations, and that disclosure, that better disclosure includes things like um, lowering the threshold for disclosure. So at the moment, if you donate less than about $14,000 to a political party, you, there is no requirement for disclosure. So you could just make um, a number of uh, small donations to political parties and have that fly completely under the radar. Um, the uh, and other other. Uh, techniques for better disclosure include uh, real-time disclosure, and uh, which we see in other jurisdictions. It's, it's sort of wild that uh, this concept that in Australia you can make a donation to a political party and only have that disclosed after 18 months. Um, you know, it's it, yeah, it, it's woefully inadequate. So I would recommend that you know listeners check out those resources, check out those recommendations, and get it get in touch with your local federal member and ask what they're actually doing to enact those, mm. you know, those recommendations and those necessary changes to the political donations system. Okay, thank you. Um, and I guess how can, so, so you mentioned your website at the beginning um, or any, how can people uh, get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. So um, people can, people can get in touch by, by going to the site as, uh, all the campaigns that I that I mentioned, so you know our, our banks campaign, our insurance campaign, the superannuation campaign, um, Stop Adani, all of that um, is 
you know, all, there's a, a bunch of information on our website about all of those campaigns, so listeners can check out marketforces.org.au. Excellent. Um, I'd also really recommend that, that listeners sign up to the mailing list because there are constantly opportunities to take action to shift money away from fossil fuels, and we're, we're constantly providing opportunities to our supporters to do that. So, um, yeah, really worthwhile. Great. Thank you so much, Jack, for joining us this morning. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that was Jack Bertolis, who is a research coordinator at Market Forces, who spoke about tax breaks afforded to resource extraction industry and the recent disclosures of fossil fuel company donations to major political parties. All right, and... uh you're on Thursday Breakfast 3CR 855 AM. And just another reminder to check those new and updated exposure sites in Melbourne and the surrounding area. So there have been new sites added on the 10th of February. That is yesterday. Um, so you can head to the Victorian Government Department of Health website and just check to make sure um, that you're keeping up to date on any actions you need to take to keep our community safe. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. And now we're going to go to an interview with Gala Vanting from the Scarlet Alliance Australian Sex Workers Association. Gala is the national programs manager there, and uh, she joins us to speak about the government's online safety bill, which poses a serious threat to sex worker livelihoods and digital freedom and privacy. Hi, Gala. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Pleasure. So could you start by telling listeners a little bit about the work of Scarlet Alliance? Sure. So Scarlet Alliance is the National Sex Workers Association, um, and we represent Australian sex workers on a range of advocacy, policy, and health issues. Um, and we have members, uh, individual sex workers as our membership, and also um, sex worker or peer organizations in all of the states and territories. Fantastic. And um, so... On to the, the main concern of, of this week. The government began a consultation process regarding the development of a new online safety act in December of 2020, and they've been seeking submissions on a draft of the online safety bill, which, uh, which the government claims aims to, quote, improve Australia's online safety legislation. So why was this bill introduced and what does it aim to do? Um, so the bill is a product of um, the eSafety Commission, um, which was established, I think, a few years ago now, um, to to address harm online. Um, and a lot of the work of the eSafety Commissioner is around, um, you know, um, sexual exploitation material, um, revenge porn, you know, people having content uploaded online, cyberbullying, um, that sort of thing. Um, the bill expands the powers of the eSafety Commissioner. Um, and, it, look, its intention is to address things like um, extensive platform power and content moderation issues, you know, problems that we associate with um, the proliferation of big technology um, 
And in some ways, it, it is quite well-intentioned, um, but I think its framework for harm and, and you know, the, and, and protect, quote-unquote protection um, is, is fairly narrow, and that sex workers are sort of, in many ways, actually excluded from um, the range of people who have protection online, um, according to the bill. So I think our big issue is that, um, you know, the, the powers of the bill are too broad, too sweeping, um, lots of uh, loose definitions um, and, and things that I think uh, are aimed at the protection of children. Um, but I guess what's, what's not being acknowledged is that the protection of children is not mutually exclusive with, um, you know, the protection of, of the, the safety tools and resources and, um, you know, forms of online work that sex workers use to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, sex workers have been raising serious concerns about the significant impacts that the bill is going to have on their ability to sustain their livelihoods. So could you tell us about some of the sort of specific concerns around the bill that Scarlet Alliance has uh, come across? Sure. Um, so I guess, you know, the, the bill brings forward something called the online content scheme. Um, and the online content scheme imports a lot of the very flawed classifications, regulations that we have in Australia and attempts to apply them to the Internet. Um, we think this is a little bit of a misguided attempt, and we also think that the, um, the classifications guidelines are currently not functioning um, for what they're for, which is film, television, um, print, video games, that sort of thing, um, and, it, and that it's not fit for purpose for moderating the Internet. Um, the content scheme also uh, sort of equates um, sexual, all sexual content with harm um, or with harmful content. Um, and we think that's problematic um, because there are a range of um, types of content online from, you know, fine art nudity um, up to hardcore pornography, all of which have, um, do have value um, in and of themselves. You know, they have economic value for sex workers, they have cultural and educational value. Um, and, uh, and we think that um, but the, the attempts that the bill is making to, um, to protect children um, don't actually address anything around, you know, the media literacy with which young people need to receive um, uh, the, the, the images that they see online, you know, the way that they interpret them, the way that they understand them. Um, it doesn't put any onus on parents for um, doing that education um, with their children and also, you know, controlling what um, what their children are able to see through things like um, search engine filters and that sort of thing. So I guess, you know, um, we think that the, the powers of the commissioner to remove pretty much any adult content um, of their own volition or uh, as spawned by a complaint um, is, is simply too broad and has um, unintended capture. Uh, and it's very likely to impact, um, you know, sex workers who advertise online or people, sex workers who use uh, social media platforms to advertise. And it's also potentially damaging to a lot of the spaces that we use to build community and share safety information. Um, so because the, the range of the bill is so broad, because they have um, financial consequences for platforms who don't um, put adult content behind a restricted access system, um, and, and also they have the power to define what that system is. Um, we think what is likely to happen is we will see the same chilling effect um, from platforms that we saw with the, the American legislation, FOSTA-SESTA, um, and that caused a whole lot of deplatforming and sex workers and loss of digital assets and accounts 
Um, and that can be extremely damaging for people who are running small businesses, um, doing content creation or tanning work. Um, and I guess, you know, online sex work um, has been something that has actually really supported sex workers to be part of the community response to COVID-19, um, where we were not able to uh, do in-person work. Um, some of us were able to pivot to online work. So having those tools, and that's just one of the reasons why sex workers need to have access to online work. Um, so I, we think it's also uh, something, it, it's about our autonomy and choice over where and how we work and removing the possibility of online work or making it so burdensome that it's actually too costly for us to conduct takes away some of our choice around how and where we work. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for people that aren't really familiar with the way that the FOSTA and SESTA um, legislation sort of affected um, the the way that sex workers were able to just, you know, engage in, in regular communication on uh, on social media, you may you may have seen, um, you know, I definitely have noticed from sex workers that I follow on Instagram, for example, people's uh, posts, uh, even just, you know, posts of themselves having doing regular activities, um, being reported for solicitation um, and, you know, various kinds of um, very broad application of, uh, you know, these um, discriminatory legislation to kind of, you know, prevent any kind of posting and people just trying to figure out, you know, how do I even maintain a presence at all online, let alone um, a presence as a sex worker online. Um, and so I think it's also really important to emphasize that this bill is going to affect everyone if it passes. Um, you know, it's not it's not just restricted to that. And I think people, you know, there's a risk of uh, especially people who are pretty disconnected from or don't you know know any sex workers from being like well how's it going to affect me but it is it really is you know quite a broad sweeping bill so what are some of the broader effects that the bill is going to have on online interactions both public and private so the um the commissioner has the power to order um takedown notices link removal notices app deletion notices um and so any service um, that does um, provide access to an Australian internet user um, to a- any kind of content that's classified by the bill as class one or class two, um, those services could be uh, under threat. Um, and I guess, you know, when we're thinking in civilian or non-sex worker terms, things like hookup apps could be impacted by this, um, sexual health resources, especially those that use um, explicit imagery, you know, and uh, often, um, you know, this, uh, sexual health campaigns targeted at the LGBTI community um, use erotic or nudity um, or sexual imagery. Um, and so, you know, we know that platforms are not, um, and that artificial intelligence is not strong in context. Um, so losing access to a whole bunch of those things um, is definitely a possible outcome of the bill's passage and enforcement. Um, I think there's also, um, you know, something should be said for the, the sort of gentrification of digital space um, and the siloing of adult content into sort of corners of the web. Um, and, and what we advocate for is like a, a healthy conversation about sex and sexuality um, on, you know, on the Internet in the same way that it is in other aspects of the public. Um, so I think there's, uh, you know, whilst I, I think there are consequences for non-sex workers, I also, um, I also really want to push people to 
um, to care about it because it's so deeply impacts sex workers, because sex workers are members of the community. Um, and it, quite frankly, we make the Internet worse, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, like, you know, even though um, a lot of people hadn't really thought about it previously, some people did, you know, turn to uh, engage in things like OnlyFans and that kind of thing. And there's been a lot more of a conversation about that, obviously problematic kind of things coming up in terms of people engaging um, in sort of sex work um, in that sort of pandemic period who hadn't done it before. But I think it's also really important to think about the fact that um, sex workers are workers, um, sex workers' rights are workers' rights. And by um, failing to attend to the importance of uh, this bill and the way that it impacts sex workers, it's effectively ignoring like a, a segment of the working population and an integral part of the population. Um, so what is Scarlet Alliance asking for with regards to this bill? So Scarlet Alliance are preparing a submission and we're also encouraging sex workers and allies to prepare submissions. Um, we've created a community policy kit, which you can find on our website um, or in my Instagram bio. Um, and that will guide you through our policy positions um, and give you a sense of what it is that we are, um, what we're targeting. Um, in terms of what we're asking for from um, from the, the review process, um, we definitely want to see there be a bit of a reining in and some transparency and accountability for the decisions of the e-safety commissioner. And also, um, you know, right now they are indemnified from any uh, liability for any civil proceedings, um, you know, that might result from someone's loss of income or something like that um, due to a bad decision. Um, so we're seeking some control over the powers of the commissioner. Um, and we have a whole bunch of other recommendations as well um, that you can find in the policy kit. Um, but essentially, you know, we, we think that it's likely that the bill will pass, um, but, but it definitely needs some amendment in order to balance the need to um, to address the the actual harm that can occur um, online um, and also protect sex worker livelihoods and safety. Definitely. Um, so how can people find out more about Scarlet Alliance and join the fight to stop the bill? Um, and I also just wanted to note the um, plug the fantastic infographic about the bill and how to make that submit, uh, make a submission by um, a couple of uh, people on Instagram at Tilly.Hortopia at underscore Zengineer and at whole underscore money. Um, but yeah, uh, any recommendations for how people can follow Scarlet Alliance's work and make those submissions? Yep, so we're on Twitter at Scarlet Alliance. Um, ScarletAlliance.org.au is our website. Um, so you can reach out to us in either of those spaces. Um, and the bill, uh, submissions to the bill are due on the 14th of February um, at 5 p.m. Um, for people who are considering making a submission, I'm also, um, as part of my role at Scarlet Alliance, able to offer a bit of support in putting something together, making sure that it's in line with the policy positions. Um, so you can also reach out to me um, just through the Scarlet Alliance website. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Gala. I really appreciate you making the time to talk with us about this really important issue. Thanks so much for having me. All right, and that was an interview with Gala Vanting, uh, the National Programs Manager at Scarlet Alliance, Australian Sex Workers Association, who spoke with us about the government's online safety bill, which poses a serious threat to sex worker livelihoods and digital freedom and privacy.
The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. And we're back on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. Now we're going to go to an interview with Ibatonia Aprakasa, who's a DJ, an artist, and creative director of A Regular Fit, based on Gadigal Land, who joins us to chat about the brand new podcast, Four to the Floor, exploring the black roots of contemporary music, which is a podcast about black music, history, and culture in Australia and beyond. Hey, Ibatonia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so before we jump into it, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been DJing for about, well, since 2011, so 10 years now. Um, and yeah, I guess my work's quite varied. I DJ, I do different, like I, I guess I'm learning more about the sort of art practices I want to engage in. Like I do a lot of digital video work, but also work part-time doing community engagement um, for anti-discrimination in New South Wales. Uh, yeah, I don't know, and I run a regular fit. Sometimes it's hard to, like, describe the things that you do. I always get <laughs> confused about that. I do a lot of different things is basically it, um, and a lot of them are sort of at the crux of kind of all about finding ways to reduce harm towards black folks, people of colour, um, queer folk, and, yeah... I guess that's my work. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. So what was the impetus for uh, the development of the Four to the Floor podcast and what kind of journey are you planning on taking listeners through through with it? Um, Because I see that you've also got accompanying resources with this episode, so it seems like a really really great project. Yeah, thank you. Um, So this project actually started last June, um, during like peak of the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and I guess, like, the largest iteration of it since, um, well, I guess the largest iteration of it, the civil rights movement globally. But it kind of just started because I, I wanted to understand, like, I've always been really into music history. We're talking a lot about Black liberation and self-determination and self-empowerment around that time. And even up till now, we always have been, but I think the conversations are a lot louder then. And it was... 
I guess I, I very much blend into music history as a way of, I don't want to say placating myself, but seeking more understanding as to what was happening and what historically relationships had been like between black folk that have lived in this country um, and that have been, that have visited this country. I think that there's like a really limited understanding on, well, it's my understanding, that there's a limited understanding of like the, his, the historical relationship between black folk of different heritages um, since colonization and even before that. And so I just wanted to sort of understand that and use music history as a way for us to understand each other and also to celebrate ourselves, but also to create a living archive for the amazing black artists that are around now, such as Paul Gary and Pookie, who I'm interviewing next week. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the initial thought process behind it, and it's kind of evolved into this um, amazing... It's been on a journey... The research side of things, I guess, is more about having people know, like, putting all the information out there so that people can read it for themselves. It's not just me telling people things. I think it's important for people that want to do further research that the information is there. So anything that is free access, um, I'm happy to share and I'll give references to everything else. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a really... Um a sort of really like dynamic kind of learning experience engaging with the podcast as well because it's sort of this grounding in the sort of historical context of black music as like a political and cultural phenomenon but also um, engaging with the sort of like vibrant contemporary production of sound like especially in that first episode with Paul Gary which I highly recommend people listen to just sort of the the back and forth between um the sort of like political, cultural and community building aspects of, of making and engaging with music. Um, mm. So out on that first episode, um, maybe you want to give listeners a little bit of a teaser of, of what that featured and, and what else is in store for the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, in the first episode, I interviewed um, who is a multi-instrumentalist a DJ under the name of DJ PGZ, uh filmmaker, producer, very multi, like, just does amazing things across fields, but also very community-oriented, and we have this really fantastic chat about, I guess, the intersections of community and art and how our connection to community and culture informs our art practices, as well as, like, varying, like, Veering into Afrofuturism, Indigenous Futurism, because I really do have this belief that since, like, time immemorial, Black folk have been, and I talk about Black folk in this sense, like, respectfully, I am of Nigerian heritage, so I'm not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, but Black folk collectively and globally have had this way of forward thinking, and that's how we sort of maintain and we continue to exist is by... I don't know, reimagining constantly. So we do talk about that a bit in the episode. And I talk about that with Pookie as well. Um, because, yeah, I just think it's really important to talk about. So it was really cool to talk to Paul about all of that, to talk about his history with music, um, to talk also about just how varied his music history is. Like, I think there's a lot of assumptions that are made generally about black people and the music that we listen to. And I think it's cool to break those stereotypes and generalizations by letting people speak for themselves 
Um, yeah, it's a really interesting episode, and you should definitely check it out. I'm not always great at freaking things that I do, but yeah, it's, it's fun. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did not expect the like hardcore band thing. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's. I think it's. It's also just um, a wonderfully produced show, produced by uh, Sarah Mashman, and just beautifully layered and put together. You know, with with a combination of um, you know your conversation and uh, interspersing that with little clips of audio and um, layering tracks underneath it. I think it's just a, a lovely listening experience. So where yeah, can um, listeners, uh, yeah, get a taste of the podcast? Yeah, so for the minute, we're just doing two episodes with Melbourne Music Week, um, and it will continue. Uh, but as of right now, if you go into the Melbourne Music Week podcast page on, I think, Apple Podcasts or their website, you can find the link to Four to the Floor. Exploring the Blackbirds of Contemporary Music. And I just want to quickly shout out Sarah Mashman because she's been amazing and she's taught me so much about podcasting. I, I just threw clips of music at her and I was like, I want to include these things. And yeah, she did a great job. So thank you, Sarah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you so, so much for taking the time to, to chat with me about the podcast. Once again, I really encourage listeners to go have a listen to that as well. Um, and I'll be keeping an ear out for the episode with Pookie. So thank you so much, Ayabatonya. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. So that was an interview with Ibatonya Abracasa about the Four to the Floor podcast, which explores the black roots of contemporary music. And it's a podcast about black music, history and culture in Australia and beyond. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. All right, and we're back on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m., and we are coming up to the end of the show. So, Shahrazad, shall we give listeners a little bit of a rundown of what we covered today? Yes, definitely. So uh, we heard a conversation that Carly had with Liv Tualo, who spoke about the Nursery for Community, a nursery adaption project in Vanuatu. 
After that, Shahrazad spoke with Liz Starry, who's a financial counselor working at Women's Legal Service, and they discussed uh, problems that women experiencing economic abuse have been facing during COVID-19. And then Jack Bertolis uh, joined us, who is a research coordinator at Market Forces, uh, and he spoke a bit about the tax breaks afforded to the resource extraction industry. And then I spoke with Gullivanting, who's the National Programs Manager at Scarlet Alliance, Australian Sex Workers Association, about the government's online safety bill. And finally, I spoke with Abitonia Evercasa, who's a DJ and artist and creative director of Irregular Fit, who joined us to, spoke, uh, to speak about the new podcast, Four to the Floor. Um, and just an, up, uh, an update again for listeners, for listeners who are unaware that uh, if uh, that there's new exposure sites, so the um, depart- the DHHS website, so it's dhhs.vic.gov.au, uh, updated uh, exposure sites, which include the Commonwealth Bank in Glen Waverley, the HBC, HSBC Bank in Glen Waverley, and the Sunbury Square Shopping Centre in Sunbury. Yeah, and um, I guess you know. We're going to have, there's going to be uh, one, one significant anniversary um, happening in the time between this show and the next, and that is the 14th of February, which we all celebrate as the death of Captain Cook. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I hope you all have something nice planned for that. Um, and also before you get celebrating, please make sure that you make a submission to the online safety bill that we talked about uh, with Gala. Um, you can check out uh, the Scarlet, Scarlet Alliance's website if you want to find out more information about that. Just a reminder. And yeah, I think that's that's all we have time for today. Um, Shahrazad, anything else? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, uh, South Australia also reimposed its hard border for Greater Melbourne residents from midnight yesterday, so from last night. Um, and in New South Wales, some restrictions are still set to ease today all right well i think we might uh wrap it there but um before i head i just want to say see ya eddie you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au